But the reality is, mate, is I was a bad person at that time if you would measure me and my character based on my behaviour. I was a drug addict, I was actively involved in criminal activity to finance my addiction. I wasn't doing anything positive with the world. And had I been the person who had died that day, people would have done exactly what they did with my victim, which is to pick up the paper the next day and go, oh, well, good riddance to bad rubbish. One criminal kills another, no loss there. But of course, I've had the opportunity to reflect on my life, who I want to be. Welcome to Pod Defend New Zealand. I'm speaking directly to all New Zealanders today. It's a political podcast where we chat about issues affecting Kiwis. Cases of COVID-19 to report in managed isolation in New Zealand. We talk to Kiwis from all sides of the political aisle. What has the government delivered? Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Steve O'Ely, and we hope you enjoy our show. Welcome to November's episode of Pod Defend New Zealand. I'm your host, Steve O'Ely. This month, we have Dr. Paul Wood. He went into prison as a high school dropout, serving life for murder before turning his life around, gaining a degree in psychology and in philosophy, and eventually a PhD in psychology. Paul now uses his experience in leadership and organizational development and now spends the majority of his time speaking at conferences and delivering workshops for organizations. I spoke to Paul about the things that led to him getting into prison, his time in prison, and the lessons that we can learn. We also speak about his two books, How to Escape from Prison and Mental Fitness. You will notice occasionally that there are parts where Paul's audio isn't perfect, It doesn't really affect things too much, but there is one part where I do overdub his voice so you can make sense of what he's saying. Thanks again for tuning in to Pod Defend New Zealand. I hope you enjoy this month's episode. As always, if you know of anyone that's looking for non-biased political discussion, please do share Pod Defend New Zealand with your friends. Thanks for listening. Can you just give us a bit of a summary of who you are and how you got to where you are? Oh, okay, let's see. I'm Paul Woods. Who am I? I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a committee member and board member of various sort of charities and different enterprises. I run my own business. I'm also a convicted murderer though, which probably makes me a little bit more unusual than many who use all those sort of preceding labels and identities. (laughs) My background's in psychology. I have a master's degree and a doctorate in an era of psychology called differential psychology, otherwise known as individual differences. And it basically looks at how people differ from each other in terms of their behavior, their attributes, their preferences, their capabilities, and finding their path in terms of having the most meaningful, satisfying life possible. And uh, I think that's important to clarify because, of course, most people, when they think of psychology, they just think of clinical psychology. They think of, you know, people on the couch sort of discussing their problems. Whereas the area of psych I focus on is far more about flourishing, you know, how can you have the best life possible based on, you know, the reality of who you are and what works for you. And the normal vehicle for that is in leadership development in the workplace. So I spend a lot of time helping leaders be more effective, which is bloody crucial. I mean, anyone who's spent any time in the workforce, Steve, will have had experienced people who have ended up being promoted into leadership positions who actually become a barrier for engagement and performance. You know, I mean, the joke in exit interviewing, you know, when people leave organizations and get interviewed is that people join organizations and leave managers. So it's really important to help people think about and get the skills that enable them to really be more effective in that leadership space. 
And of course, there's some people who are in there who are already good, who are already well and truly on the journey. And for them, it's more an opportunity to create the space necessary to really reflect on their own practice and just accelerate that capability even more. That's what I spend a lot of time doing. It's sort of my professional background. I spend a lot of time as well working on helping people develop insights and the skills to be able to flourish more effectively through adversity. And life's full of adversity, mate. And it's not a threat to be avoided, it's a challenge to be embraced. It's a sign you're doing something meaningful with your life, Steve. You know, a bit of stress, a bit of pressure, but we get all these unhelpful messages from society around it. So I spend a lot of my time helping people get more realistic, helpful ideas about that stuff and the tools to more proactively manage how they can not only bounce back from stress, but grow as a result of it and cope more effectively when the heat is on. So there you go, there's a bit of sort of professional background. Just to go to the adversity side of things, I know we don't want to focus on this, but I think it's helpful for people that don't know your story just to have a little bit of a background as to... Yeah, fair enough, mate. I think there'll be some people going, hang on, let's just roll back to that murderer part. And, you know, look, I say that in a bit of jest, but to be honest, it's black humour. It's taken me years to even be comfortable saying that word and applying that label. Because that is the reality. I was convicted of murder when I was 18, and it's a heavy word, man. It's not something that I identify with. You know, I don't conceptualise myself as a murderer, even though I have that conviction. And, you know, look, the reality is, is that I earned that conviction as well. A lot of the time in New Zealand, we think of murder as a premeditated homicide. I wasn't convicted of that, but I was convicted of acting in a way that I should have known was likely to result in death without sufficient provocation. And that was the result of me having a meeting with my then drug dealer when I was 18 and them attempting to assault me and me going far beyond what was required in terms of self-defense in that situation. You know, there are other things that we can get into around that, but look, I've written a whole book on that story as well. And I don't want to say anything that it comes across as trying to minimize or sort of mitigate that offending either. A lot of people will meet me or hear my story and will be sort of like, oh, well, you know, the person you killed was a bad person and you must have been just someone who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But the reality is, mate, is I was a bad person at that time if you would measure me and my character based on my behavior. I was a drug addict. I was actively involved in criminal activity to finance my addiction. I wasn't doing anything positive with the world. And had I been the person who had died that day, people would have done exactly what they did with my victim, which is to pick up the paper the next day and go, oh, well, good riddance to bad rubbish. One criminal kills another, no loss there. But of course, I've had the opportunity to reflect on my life, who I want to be, what I need to do in order to look back at my days and to genuinely feel, hey, I think it was worthwhile that I existed, that I was a net contributor rather than a detractor from this experience that we all have. Whereas, of course, they'll never have that opportunity. So, you know, just to acknowledge that, I made every decision to put myself into the situation. I made every decision that then earned me my place in the New Zealand prison system. And it's interesting, like the first book I wrote was really autobiographical called How to Escape from Prison. And that was about my experience of going in as this high school dropout, drug addicted teen into the New Zealand prison system long term. And I was given a sentence of 10 to life, so I was serving a minimum of 10 years and a maximum of you never get out and you die in prison. I think one of the interesting things that people often misunderstand in New Zealand is they think that your minimum non-parole period for a murder conviction is when you get out, when it 100% isn't. Most people will do approximately 50% on top of their minimum non-parole. So if you're doing a 10-year minimum, which is really the lowest end you'd ever get, 
then you're going to probably do about 15 before you're released. If you're serving 17 years, you'll probably do into the sort of the mid-20s or beyond before you're released. And 17 years is pretty much the standard starting place for people these days as a minimum. And uh, there are certainly people who have been sentenced to life who never get out. In fact, I can think of one example of a guy who's basically been in since the, the mid-80s. And the parole board makes this assessment on ongoing risk to the community on the basis of whether they release you. And they don't always get it right, that's for sure. It's an imperfect science. But they do tend to be risk adverse and err on the side of caution there. But I just mention all this because, again, the way some lobby groups in the media portray life sentences is quite inaccurate sometimes. I was really lucky. I got out after 10 years and 10 months, which is incredibly early for a 10-year minimum. I fully expected to do 15 at least, but that was because I did a lot of work and had a lot of support to set me up for success going back to the community, which gave the parole board a lot of confidence. And, you know, ironically, I suppose, is that when I ended up in prison as an 18-year-old, I was pretty well adjusted to the situation and adapted to it because I had lived the lifestyle of crime and criminality before going in there, which meant a lot of the people in the prison system when I went in were people I already knew, gang members I already had associations with, and the same rules applied to a great extent. I suppose the difference was sort of like the level of intensity of those rules. When I talk about the rules, I'm really talking about it being like the law of the jungle. The prison system is a system where might is right and where the most violent and aggressive people are the people who rise to the top of the community and have the greatest amount of power. And it's not an environment, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this, that really increases the likelihood people will not offend when they get out. Quite the opposite, I would say. It is quite an interesting topic, that, because... We're seeing in the research, and you're probably more familiar of, of this than me, is that in a place like uh, Norway, I think they've got the lowest rates of reoffending, and the prison is treated like a glorified retirement village with a fence around it. And then you look at America, where the rates of reoffending are extremely high, and it looks like an extremely violent place to be in prison. Yeah, and unfortunately, what we've done is we've followed the North American model. And, you know, it's a model where the justice system and corrections has really just been used as a political football. And it's been used as, you know, you could argue a cynical, emotive vote-gaining tool rather than something where there's an evidence-based interest in actually getting change. And I just want to be really clear about this too. Like, the whole punish approach is completely understandable, eh? If you've been victimized by crime in any way, shape, or form, it's completely understandable that you have an emotional response to that and you want retribution. I mean, geez, I've been, you know, the victim of multiple assaults. I mean, you know, let's say I've experienced multiple assaults. Again, in the prison environment, it feels strange to think of yourself as a victim. It's just the nature of the brutal environment you live in that this stuff happens. But also, more recently, my wife and I were bloody ripped off by this woman on Trade Me who purchased a pram off us and then told us there was something wrong with it. So I refunded the money and she never dropped the pram back and kept the money. And I'll tell you what, I feel righteous indignation and a desire for retribution on that, Steve. <laughs> so I understand this is what John Wick movies are about and the rest of it. I understand the emotional desire for retribution and to punish people. It's completely legitimate. But as a society, it's really problematic when we use that understandable oh so human emotional desire as 
the launch point for our policy making and decision making. And what we know is that the US is very much about that punishment. What they've done is over years, they've just increased the use of mandatory laws for sentencing. And that is incredibly problematic because it's when we turn our judges into administrators, not judges. They're no longer taking into account the specific circumstances of offences, but instead are just administering standardised processes. So it removes the whole judgment element and we end up with massive problems and miscarriages of justice. Whereas what they've done in Norway, and this is what's really interesting about Norway, is to give you an idea, they have about a 20% reoffending rate. Okay, so within two years, about 20% of inmates will go and reoffend. Within New Zealand, the estimates are normally around 50 to 60% reoffending rate. So that is significantly greater. But what people often do is they'll go, oh, well, they're a different type of culture, you know, they're a different this, that. But that's a load of rubbish because Norway actually had really similar reoffending rates to New Zealand until it changed its course. It used to use the same lock them up, punish them approach. But it decided it wasn't working and it changed course. And within just a few years of changing course, it had massively slashed its reoffending rate. So we're not even talking about hypotheticals here. We've got really specific and good case study examples of how this stuff works. But the problem is, is the approaches is an approach of restoration, where they're looking at the people in prison and going, how can we restore these people to functioning members of society? How can we restore them to give them a level of psychological and, I suppose, just general competence that will enable them to go out and not reoffend, to be positive contributing members of society? But unfortunately, that comes across as soft. And if you've been the victim of crime, you don't like that. Again, that's fair enough, and I'm generalizing there. Obviously, there are some people who have been victims of crime who are more interested in reducing the likelihood of someone else experiencing this going forward rather than their sort of like emotional desire for retribution. But again, they're a great case study. But how do they do that restoration? It's about treating people as people and going, hey, look, what are the deficiencies? What are the needs? How can we help you really restore yourself to a whole well-functioning member of society? And I think that's a really important idea is that, Steve, the people who end up in prison are not people who have high levels of well-being who have high levels of functionality. No one's sitting in maximum security prison because they had a life of high levels of happiness and success. They're sitting there because they were dysfunctional and damaged in some way that led them to believe that this was the appropriate course of action given the circumstances they were in. And this is a really cool and important shift that's gone on in terms of the justice system, but also in terms of social work and that is to move away from the idea that people behave badly because there's something wrong with them and moving towards the idea that people behave badly because of what's happened to them, what they've experienced in their lives. And that's called a trauma-informed approach. And what we do is if we go, your behavior is a function of what you've experienced and what's happened to you, then it gives us a path forward in terms of changing that behavior. But when we categorize people as villains, when we say there's something wrong with you in an enduring sense, then it deprives us of that path forward in terms of actually getting change. And people live up or down to those expectations of them. It's tough because in that Norwegian system, they give people expectations to live up to. Whereas a lot of the time in the New Zealand system, historically and still really to this day, 
there's a lot of that. We need to contain you because you are simply someone who is problematic and there's something wrong with you. And all that does is reinforces the same behavior or even encourage more of it in a lot of respects. Just to go back, Paul, to your childhood, I know it's been mentioned that you started using drugs when you were 12 years old yeah. and you're sort of involved with crime leading up to the big offense as an 18 year old. Looking back, is there something that you see that could have been done differently to prevent you going down that path in the first place? I know we can't make government responsible for everything, but there are definitely things that we as a society can do to help teenagers like yourself. Yeah, nice one, Steve. And I think actually that's the path. I mean, if we really want to be effective in terms of reducing the issues we have with the justice system, then it's the fence at the top of the cliff, right? Not the ambulance at the bottom. And uh, when I think about myself, I think there's a couple of things here that it's incredibly useful for parents and people who care about young people to know. And one is the power of positive mentors outside of the immediate nuclear family. Anyone who's got teenage kids will know that their teenage kids just won't listen to them so much of the time. Whereas someone else could say exactly the same thing to them and it's the best news they've ever heard. But the messenger gets in the way of the message. And part of that whole teenage period of identity formation is rebellion against your parents. Rebellion against authority because it's part of this process of figuring out who am I as an adult? And trying to break away from that, that sort of like yoke of just being the child. And what I would say is having your children involved with people and involved with groups and communities where they have the opportunity to access those positive role models and support who can give them a nudge in the right direction is so valuable. It really is. And like I think about myself, when I was sort of in those teenage years, well, for one thing, my mum was in the process of dying. She was terminally ill. And so that was my dad's focus. And that was what consumed her as well, of course. So they didn't have as much capacity to be aware of some of the stuff I was getting up to as they might have in other circumstances. And for me as well, that impending sort of death, and, and that was a big factor for me in my teenage years in terms of some of the pain I was in and I was trying to deal with through drug use. It's bloody hard losing parents, particularly when you're young, but at any point it's difficult. And, you know, this was sort of like 80s, early 90s is sort of when I was a kid, right? And my mum got ill in the late 80s. And this really wasn't a period in New Zealand society where it was standard to really sit down with kids and have really deep and meaningful conversations with them about everything going on. As you saw from my kids trying to bust in here and create a disturbance earlier, I've got a couple kids. I've got a, a six-year-old and a four-year-old boy. And, you know, heaven forbid, if anything was happening to my wife or I, we'd sit down, we'd talk to them about it, we'd make sure they're really aware of what's going on and everything within age-appropriate constraints. Whereas at that point, when my mum was getting sick, it really wasn't something that was as talked about with kids. And again, that was just a general societal thing at that point. My family wasn't unusual. I mean, it was to some extent, but certainly nothing to the extent that would really be as useful as you'd do these days. And for me, that impending death was like a shadow on my peripheral vision, something I knew was there, but I didn't really know enough about to be able to deal with effectively, and I certainly didn't have the tools to be able to deal with it effectively. So that was very consuming for my parents, as you can imagine, those years. And I was very much off the rails there. And there were points where there could have been interventions from people that would have steered me in the right direction. 
For example, you know, I was playing rugby league as part of this sort of at-risk youth rugby league team that was put together by the police, actually. And I've always been a fairly athletic person. And had the coach at that point, had one of the coaches said to me, hey, this could be a path for you. This could be something you could be really good at if you really focus your energy and attention on it. That could have been a different direction that I took in my life, pursuing a career in rugby league. But instead, the main coach was one of the local drug dealers. <laughs> so there was just opportunities missed there in terms of having the right mentors around and support that could have given me a nudge. And that's a really big one that we need to be focused on. Do your kids have these positive role models and mentors outside of that immediate family? And another one I always talk to about, which really relates to this as well, Steve, is what the prestige economy of your teenagers is. Now, the prestige economy, that's a term we use from evolutionary psychology. And it basically relates to this. What are the things that are seen and valued and respected by the peer group of your teenagers that give them prestige? Because prestige is something you get when other people value your skills and knowledge and your capability, right? And so for me, the prestige economy for my peer group growing up, that was the capacity for violence. So the better at violence you were, the more respected you were, the more validation you got. It was also a disregard and disrespect for the rules. So breaking the law was something that was seen and valued, even if it was just wanton, purposeless breaking of the law. We used to deliberately get chased by the cops because it was an exciting thing to do. You know, it wasn't purposeful, but it was something that was seen and valued. Oh, did you manage to get away? Oh, no, you know, this other mate here got bitten by the police dog. It was part of that whole prestige economy. And there were other things in there too which were really unhelpful. So one of the things I always say to parents is, what's the prestige economy for your teenager's peer group? And if it's been studious, if it's been musical, if it's been athletic, great stuff. But if it's rule breaking and criminality, or you suspect that, that's gonna be a real problem. So those would be the two things I'd say, is the mentoring from external people, but also keeping an eye on that prestige economy. Apparently with terrorists, a lot of the terrorists that get recruited are as teenagers when they don't have a mentor. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that those same kids might have gone and joined a sports team or some other club had they had the right mentor at the right time. 100%. I mean, and here's the irony. Like, I tell you what, these days, some of my really good friends are senior police officers. <laughs> I've got a good mate who's a real senior cop who said to me multiple times, oh, you would have made a great cop. You know? <laughs> and I think part of it is some of those similar attributes and tendencies can actually go in a really positive direction if you have the right influences at the right time. Fundamentally, I haven't changed who I am as a person in many respects. What's changed is the outlet and direction of my energy and my behavior. It's moved away from things that have a negative impact on myself and others to things that have a positive impact. In neuroscience, we would call someone like myself dopamine dominant. And that means that I have a lot more of a tendency to be energized and driven to take an action, but also to be drawn to things that might be more exciting and more stimulating. And when I was a teenager, that was an attraction to chaos that got me into trouble based on my peer group, based on the circumstances I was in. Whereas as an adult, that's stuff that really enables me to propel myself forward in my career, and to do things that perhaps more risk-adverse people wouldn't do, 
that have actually enabled me to maximize my impact and do some stuff which is probably more redemptive. I could quite easily be just having a professional career right now where I never talk about my background, which is not a background I'm proud of in any way. It's one, you know, which is really cringeworthy in every sense. But I talk about it in part because of those tendencies. But through the talking about it, I'm actually unable to engage in more redemptive behavior and to have a more positive impact on other people than if I was more conservative. So again, the same underlying tendencies haven't changed. It's that direction of influence, right? It's where the energy goes. Does that all make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So just to fast forward a few years, Paul, so you're in prison now. I assume there would have been a period of time in prison where you were just a regular prisoner. How did you sort of turn from that criminal mentality to studying psychology and then getting a PhD? Yeah, small steps, Steve. I mean, to be honest, what we love, right, is we love this narrative where you have a Damascian experience. <laughs> you see the light, you know, and whoosh, the transformation occurs and you're changed. Real change isn't like that. Real change is about small tweaks that lead you in a really different direction over time. Just before escaping Auckland, <laughs> as we were discussing, you know, prior to this latest lockdown, I was doing a leadership program up there. And one of the things I was talking to people about is whenever people engage in their professional development, their expectations of themselves are way too big. You know, you cover all this content, you cover all these ideas, and people walk away going, oh, I'm not doing anywhere near as much of this as I would have liked. But what they fail to realize is actually it's small tweaks that make big differences over time. And that's what it was for me. I love this sort of analogy where you, if you imagine you've got two walker sailing along next to each other, right? Two ships moving in the same direction. This is the who you could be ship, and this is the who you are ship. And at the moment, they're sailing in the same direction. All you need to do is change direction on the who you could be ship by just a couple of degrees now. So small, it's hardly noticeable right now. But over time, that's going to take you to a really different destination. And that's what it was like for me. It was small steps. And there's no way I could have envisaged the level of change I would have to go. And in fact, had I had this massive goal of, oh, well, look, you know, I'll be a homeowner with a doctorate and a family and all of this sort of stuff at some point, I never even would have started. But what happened was, is I just focused on these small steps, these small things. And a big shift there was realizing that I could study and I could learn. I'd been held back here at school. I felt no connection with education when I was there. I dropped out and just been off committing burglaries and wagging from as soon as I started college until I left on mutually agreed terms very early into college. And what happened was, is I had this experience in prison where I realized that learning could actually be beneficial for you and that it could enrich your world and it could empower you more, even in a difficult environment like prison. And as a result of that, I started to learn, I started to study, I started to read. And that's when I realized, oh, my brain was like the rest of my body. I had previously thought that I wasn't book smart. I then realized actually I just had never exercised my brain in that way. So many of us are familiar with this. The difference between trying to learn something you're interested in versus something you're not the level of retention and ease is so different there, but your IQ hasn't changed. And I just hadn't really been exposed to stuff that I was interested in. But also, this is something which is really sad and sobering, and which I understand still applies to some extent. And that is, when I was in school, as a male, I would have thought being smart was effeminate in some way, and that that was a negative thing. There are still areas of society, there are still 
context in which young males have that idea. It's not cool to be smart. And that, of course, holds them back from using that mental muscle and exercising it in that way. And so I started studying psychology and I just did a couple of papers and I did them through Massey University because Massey was the only place that offered psychology from a distance. Otherwise, I never would have enrolled at university level. And the only reason I was able to is because I was over 20, which at the time meant I didn't need bursary entrance to enroll in university. So I started these papers and I ended up passing them. And that made me realize I was capable of more than I thought possible and this stuff was really interesting. So I went on and I did an undergraduate degree. And then I went on and I did my master's degree and I was only able to do that because Massey bent over backwards to change the rules to make it possible for me to study entirely from a distance. Then I started my doctorate and I was two years into my doctorate by the time I left. And I'll tell you this right now, the irony is, is that I could not get permission to start studying when I was there because no one else was studying at that level. And the prison environment is such a conservative environment that people have a reluctance to say yes to things that might put their neck on the block. It's easier to say no. So no one would give me permission. But what I did is I spoke to my dad and he, I tell you what, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for his support and the opportunities he provided me. That was a big difference in my journey than most other people in prison. And I spoke to him when he came and visited me and I said, look, can you just enroll me through Massey University? Because I bet you when the study materials arrive, whoever's in the receiving office will go, Oh, I must have permission for this and let it through. And that's exactly what happened, Steve. I was onto my doctorate by the time I left. I'd never actually had permission to study. Now, the irony of all this is, is that now there's far more systemic support for study within the prison environment, but it's actually harder to study. Because when I was studying, it was right on the shoulder period where you were still sent hard copy materials for everything. Whereas these days, there's this expectation that you'll be able to engage with online content and online learning approaches. Whereas in the prison, there's no way you're getting online. That would be a massive security risk and breach. So while there's more systemic support for it now, it's actually harder to do logistically than when I was in prison. And, you know, talking about the change, the root word for educate means to lead out of, to lead out of the darkness of your own ignorance. And mate, that's what education did for me. Step by step, it moved me further away from the small world I inhabited and further and further towards this greater space that I'm now in now where I'm aware of how many options there are in the world, how many different things I could do that would make me feel that I'm doing something meaningful, that I have use, that I have purpose, you know, that I can live in a way that I can be proud of. People in prison... They inhabit the small world. That's how you get there, eh? Yes. You inhabit this really small world. And, you know, education, again, breaks that world open. That's what it did for me. And it's different paths for different people, but that was certainly one for me. And one of the things I do these days is I go in and I try and support programs and encourage prisoners that give them some of the same opportunities and ingredients I had. And let me just tell you a story about that, if that's all right, Steve, that sort of illustrates this you know, people living up or down to expectations and how challenging the prison environment actually is. We can sit here and we can go, oh, yep, Norway, that's a great approach. We should go with that. And I definitely think we should. But also, it's a slow-turning ship to really make those kind of changes sometimes. And there are real challenges within the prison system for the staff and for others involved in it. But anyway, 
I was going in to talk about a program called Freedom and Philosophy that I'm part of that I support, which is an awesome program. And it's just a program run by a whole lot of volunteers. And it basically originated with the School of Philosophy, which is a brilliant school for people, which gives you the sort of mental tools to be able to more critically evaluate your thoughts and behavior in order to be more effective and flourishing in life. That's really what philosophy is about and what that school is about. And what they do is they go in and they run these voluntary programs for prisoners to opt into. Now, these aren't programs that get you early release or anything. So they don't have the same sort of like compulsion as the general programs that are available to some inmates do. So I go into the prison and I talk about the value of learning this stuff and the impact it's had on me and my life. Because philosophy, you know, really did give me the tools to change my life. Psychology gave me the understanding of the brain and its limitations of behavior, but it was philosophy that really gave me those critical evaluation tools. Anyway, I go in and talk about this stuff, and one of the units we go in to talk to is a maximum security non-compliant unit. So basically what this is, is if you picture like what you would see on the TV, it's not bars on the front of cells, it's big doors, and what they have is they have a meal slot in the middle to sort of let, let meals in and that. But also it's two-tiered, so it's kind of like you've got the ground level with some tables and chairs that are fixed into the concrete. You've got sills around the bottom there in a U-shape. And then you've got a mezzanine floor where there's some sills around there as well. Always good for getting thrown off those mezzanine floors, which regularly <laughs> happens in high security to people. Anyway, we're about to go in there and have this chat. And what we've done in all the other units is that any inmates who want to come along and listen to me, they'd sit there and I talk. You know, and that's all good. But because this is high security non-compliance, the senior staff member who's involved of the security of the unit, he says, oh, look, we can't have people unlocked while you're here. It's too big a security risk. In the wing, they never have more than four people unlocked at the same time because of the ratio that there has to be for staff to inmates in terms of high security. And he said, and we can't mix people because there's gang rivalries. And we can't have anyone unlocked when you're here just because of the risk of becoming a hostage or other stuff happening like that and so they said well we're thinking can we actually do this and the idea that was hit upon is what the staff would do is they would unlock all the meal slots on the doors that again are about waist height and then what people can do is people can bend down and look through those or listen through those while i stand in the middle of this high security wing and just yell okay so this is the plan and do you know what's funny is the day before this, the day before this, I had been doing a conference with some of the most successful real estate agents in the country at the Royal New Zealand Yacht Club in Auckland. And the collection of Rolexes <laughs> there and the rest of it was just fantastic. Next day, here I am, and we're discussing how this is going to work in this high security non-compliance to sort of speak. Because that's what I spend most of my time doing, right, is, is you know, public speaking. And we go, okay, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to unlock these meal slots. But I know prison and I know the environment and I know the incredible value and impact small gestures can have on people. And some of the small gestures that had the biggest impact on me when I was in prison was when people treated me like an equal and they treated me like I was someone who actually could behave in a good way, could be better than I had been in the past. And that was something I wanted to do here so what I did is I said, okay, look, that's all good. And I said, look, is it okay if I go around and say hello to people in their cells before I start speaking? And they said, yep, that's fine. You know, you have a staff member with you. So all these meal slots are unlocked. 
And what my plan is, is to make sure that everyone feels seen and valued by me. That they feel that I see them as a human being, rather than I'm just showing up to speak and to just yell and to preach or anything like that. Now it's standard operating procedure in this level of security that you would never put your hand inside the meal slots. Because as you can imagine, if you put your hand inside the meal slot, then your physical well-being is now at the discretion of the inmate who's in there, and they could easily break your arm or other things. But I decide I'm going to take a risk, and I am going to show people that I'm going to put a level of trust in them that they're not used to experiencing. So what I do is I walk up to the first cell, and I shove my hand in, and I go, Hey, my bro, just wanted to come and say g'day before I start speaking, which I'm going to do soon. And they shake my hand. And the first thing they say, I kid you not, Steve. The first thing they say is, and it's this mongrel mob member, full facial tattoos. First thing he says is he goes, chuck your shoes in here. (laughs) (laughs) And this is such a prison thing to say and do, eh? Because in prison, you wear like a prison uniform, but people have their own shoes. It's one of the things they can have. So the first thing this guy says to me, I'm like trying to create this, you know, I'm going to give you expectations to live up to. The first thing this guy says is, chuck your shoes in here. The next thing he says, because I just laughed at that, he said, oh, I'm not going to do that. And then he goes, hey, you know what it's like to be in here. Can you give me an address I can get a stash sent to that you can bring in for us? And I just, this is like literally in the space of about 10 seconds, right? This is me with my good intentions. And I just laughed again and I said to him, bro, You've got so much hustle. If you just use the same hustle and energy in a legal way, you would be cashed up and not sitting here. And he just laughed at that. I thought that was funny as. But then I went around every cell and, you know, and other people didn't tend to respond like that. That was just a classic prison encounter straight off. And again, it goes back to that idea. It's not there's something wrong with this guy. It's like what's happened to him in his life that makes him think this is the way to respond and engage with people? And whenever I come across people like that in the prison system, I'm always like, oh, makes my heart sink because there's not a whole lot of hope for people to go out and to be able to stay out when this is the behavior and the approach that's continuing to be reinforced for them, that's continuing to be rewarded and to be effective and functional. And that's the thing we have to understand, right, is that people behave in a way because it's been useful to them in the past in some context and in some regard. But anyway, I go around everyone else And people massively appreciate this gesture. And a lot of people actually offer me some of the breath mints that they get. Once a week in prison, you get to fill out this canteen form where you can order some things. And one of the things you can order on there are these little like um, sort of breath mints. And so I'm going up and saying hello to people, putting my hand and put my hand in every cell, Steve. No one chooses to, you know, use that as an opportunity to create havoc. Everyone appreciates that. And lots of people are like, oh, hey, do you want a mint? Now, that might seem like a small thing, but I'll tell you this right now, when you're in a prison environment, a maximum security environment, where you are so limited in terms of what you get access to, offering someone else something that you have is actually a massive gesture of hospitality and appreciation. And so it meant so much to be able to do that. And again, to just be able to say to these people who are in this high security environment that actually, hey, You know, I'm just going to assume you're trustworthy. I'm just going to treat you like a person rather than a risk to be mitigated, which is normally how they're treated because they have to be based on staffing ratios and the rest of it and the way the system's set up. But, you know, again, for me, that's just one interaction I've had. 
But I know from my own experience that it's those small gestures from others that can actually give you a different sense of yourself and make a big difference over time. Now, Paul, I appreciate we are running a little short on time. I would like to give you the opportunity to just briefly talk about your book, which, as I understand, it's doing pretty well on the uh, charts. Yeah, yeah, it's excellent. So this is my second book. So my first book, again, How to Escape from Prison, was autobiographical. My second book that I've had out recently and that went instant bestseller, which I'm stoked with, of course, as are HarperCollins, the publisher, is called Mental Fitness. And it's about how to build your mind for strength and resilience every day. One of the big things that got me into trouble when I was younger is I thought that I wasn't supposed to feel stress or unpleasant emotions. And so if I was worrying about something, I'd start worrying about worrying. <laughs> you know, If I was feeling anxiety, I'd start being anxious about having anxiety. I'd start stressing about stressing. Whereas the big focus of this book is to give people more realistic expectations of what their emotional experience will be and then the tools of how to cope with that more effectively to really flourish through life. And one of the cool things I love about this book, Steve, is that I had the opportunity to work with some people with really big brains, a lot of knowledge and a lot of skill set who made contributions to make this so much better a book. One of the things I was most stoked to have the opportunity to do was to observe the SAS and do some work with a special forces psychologist and more broader defense force psychs around how it is that the SAS, the special forces, cope with stress and pressure. What are the tools they use that the rest of the public can get access to? You know, we're not all in gun battles, but like other parents, my biggest stresses are things like non-compliance from my kids when it comes to tidying <laughs> up or putting shoes on or other such things, and the tools work in those contexts as well. And I'd just like to say, the level of generosity demonstrated by the SAS and by the Defence Force Sykes was phenomenal. They're great people who really want broader New Zealand society to benefit from the knowledge and the skills they have. The SAS are generally a very quiet group who don't have a lot to do with you know, anything becoming public, of course, because they operate in an environment where secrecy is really important. But when they had the opportunity to make a positive contribution through my book as a vehicle for the New Zealand public, they were so up for it, eh? And it's such a cool thing to have been involved in. So yeah, look, both my books are available at any good or bad bookstore. You can get them on Audible if you like. Personally, I listen to a lot of books these days rather than necessarily reading as many. Uh, good for doing the chores, picking up all the toys the kids refuse to pick up, that sort of stuff. That was Dr. Paul Wood. You can find his books, How to Escape from Prison, and his more recent release, Mental Fitness, at any good bookstore. If you want to find out more about Paul, you can go to his website, paulwood.com, or his Instagram, at drpaulwood. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Pod Defend New Zealand. Next month, I'll be speaking to Golruz Garaman about immigrating from Iran with her family as a refugee when she was just a kid her human rights work overseas, and becoming the first refugee to become an MP in New Zealand. As always, I'm your host Steve. See you next month on Pod Defend New Zealand. Thanks for tuning in to Pod Defend New Zealand. You can find us on Twitter, at nz underscore pod, or Instagram, at nz underscore pod. If you're feeling extra generous, please give us five stars on the podcast app. Kia ora.